Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, welcome back. I'm Elise, and you're listening to the Together PDX podcast gospel gathering series. This episode is a part two. So if you haven't listened to part one of Discipleship in a Digital Age with Felicia Wu Song, go back and start there. In this episode, Dr. Song goes into the danger of hypertasking, the difference between time management and time stewardship, and the counter story the church has to offer. Enjoy. So I like to joke that if the first one felt like, you know, uh, a, a little bit of a um, gut punch, um, you just, just hold on to your hats. Um, it gets worse. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we're talking about discipleship. Um, and I know this is about you know, you, you, you all invited me to come to talk about technology, and this is, is still about technology, but I'm kind of widening the scope because this is what sociologists do. We always feel like the thing we're talking about is actually part of something else, something bigger, some other context. And so you'll see in the title of this part, Discipleship in a Culture of Productivity, right? That, that the disciple, uh, the digital landscape that we have right now, I want to submit to you as part of, it makes sense within a pre-existing culture of productivity. Um, and in many ways, um, if we think our relationship with digital devices is hard, I think our relationship with productivity is even harder um, and even kind of more at root. So um, this is where I'm going to start. Um, if I can get this, oh, there we go. A uh, quote by Richard Foster. Um, in contemporary society, our adversary, the devil, majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. This was back in 1978. Today, we live in a world, a digital world that specializes in noise, hurry, and crowds. Our digital lives are structured to encourage us actually to live into muchness and manyness, right? That it's prized, it's valued. And if we kind of go further back in time beyond 1978 um, and we think about what it was like for the first century disciples who were so preoccupied and caught up in their everyday dramas, um, so much so that they felt compelled to ask, uh, but when did we see you, Jesus? Um, how much worse is it for us living in the 21st century? Um where our digital capacity to fill ourselves with hurry, noise, and crowds is infinite and unbounded. So I think Foster's comment forces the question, is the adversary resting satisfied when he looks at us, the church? 
And if we are honest, I think most of us would probably admit that even without digital devices, we probably have a propensity to be preoccupied in the noise and the hurry and the crowds, but it certainly doesn't help. Um, and I think, in fact, um, some of us, and I, I count myself among this group, um, the truth of the matter is some of us just simply love the feeling of getting things done. <laughs> right? I love efficiency. Um, I love productivity. Um, I naturally multitask. Like, it just seems like, what else would you do? Right? Like, so when I drive, I'm planning my classes in my head. When I'm eating, I'm reading. Right? When I'm standing out the checkout line, of course, I'm crushing through my emails. Right? Um, and with all my digital technologies at my disposal, I actually start to feel like, you know, multitasking, that's like for mere mortals. Why multitask when I can hypertask? <laughs> right? uh, instead of just doing more than one thing, let's find out how much I can do simultaneously, right? Can I walk to work and get exercise while planning the agenda for the meeting and trying to touch base with my dad at the same time, right? Just kind of like, let's try this. Can I do laundry, listen to a podcast, text a friend, and cook dinner at the same time? Come on, right? Let's do this. Um, and when I'm hitting my hyper-tasking stride, I am like this. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, that's the next one. I'm like this. I am like a human millennium falcon <laughs> jumping into productivity hyperspace, right? Just like whoosh. Right? It feels alive. feels good. It feels powerful. I'm getting somewhere. Right? Until it's not. And it feels great when everyone and everything is cooperating, running on time. <laughs> but when things take longer when I planned and someone doesn't do what I expect them to do, right? I get frustrated. I get angry. I'm impatient. Right? And so then what do I do? I do this. I steamroll. I put on my blinders and I'm like, get out of my way. I gotta get this done. Right? I got my plan. Let's, let's get going. Right? So then after a long day of this, right? This hypertasking, where am I? I'm depleted. I have headaches. My eyes are tired. My body is telling me this, this wasn't so great, right? And what do I do? I zone out on the couch. I poke and swipe at my screens. I'm cycling through my social media, my texts, my feeds, a little more Candy Crush, right? I'm searching for refreshment, but usually it doesn't come, right? My brain is overtaxed. It's just numb. I'm trying to rest, but I'm feeling restless, right? Um, so with all these signs telling me that I wasn't meant to live this way, oh, let's wait till that comes, um, I've come to see that there is an insidious lie at the root of my hypertasking, right? While I might be motivated out of a desire to be faithful to the gifts that God has given me more often than not, what I'm actually doing is bowing down to the false gods of productivity, 
And I'm coming to see that I've been training. I've been training my body and my imagination according to a rather unsacred rule of life, a set of habits and rhythms, right, that originates not from a Christian monastic tradition, but one that emerged out of modern Western industrialization, a rule of life called time management, right? Um, and I viewed time management as a way of life for so long. I mean, when I was in college and I came out and I was trying to figure out work life, you know, someone handed me a planner, right? Back then, those little planner, you know, the papery things, right? Um, so I got a, 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 a planner and then someone explained to me, this is time management, right? And you set up these rules and this is how you fill in the boxes and then you prioritize, like this is it, right? So I've lived so long in this that I tend to live actually in a chronic state of time poverty, right? Um, I tend to regard time as a limited resource that needs to be hoarded and strategically spent. Rather, right, so that's one story about time, rather than understanding that time is something that I do not possess, it is not mine, I only get to inhabit it, right? Time is moving. Um, I just get to be in it. It is a gift from God that I get to be in it, right? Um, and so time management feels um, compelling, right, in large part, because for so many of us, um, we live in a culture, right, where commitment and passion are signaled by our willingness to optimize our productivity, right? That's why we fill in all those little boxes in the calendar, right? We are um, wanting to kind of push it to the max, right? And now that we're digitally equipped with 24-7 access to information and communication, it's easy to believe that we can, right? And that we should be productive all the time. And in fact, to not be productive is increasingly felt, seen as wasteful, lazy, disobedient, unfaithful, right? Um, and all these intuitions are part of the story that our culture of productivity tells us about what it means to be human and what the good life is, right? So we, here we have another social imaginary that is built on the premises of productivity and, and time management, right? So it basically goes like this. Um, one, um, I don't have slides for this, sorry. Um, one, productivity is the ultimate good. We start there. Two, our worth and life's meaning is measured by how much we get done, right? Um, three, our lives are basically like that calendar that, that fine, helpful, actually, you know, well-intentioned person gave me at, after college, right? Our lives are basically empty vessels, Right, a string of 30-minute time blocks in our Google Calendar today that need to be filled with more meaningful accomplishments and tasks. Right, we just gotta keep plugging things in. Right, that's what our life is. Four, more is always better, even if more means less attention and care for other human beings who aren't on that schedule. Right. Um, and then five, finally, when we do rest or play, ironically, those activities are only meaningful if they make us more productive, 
in the long run, right? That's the rationale, right? You do this so that you can be protective later, right? So if we sit with this story long enough, right, we'll realize that while being productive is surely a gratifying and wondrous part of being human, right? There's nothing intrinsically wrong or bad about being productive. I mean, it's glorious, right? It's incredible, actually, right? The problem is if we live as if productivity were the ultimate good, it actually is not to be human. It is to become like a machine, because that's what machines do. Machines are productive. That is their whole essence. And the fact that productivity doesn't lead us to be human, but leads us to become more like a machine is not an accident, right? Um, we see historically that the notions of time management and productivity are actually born out of the Industrial Revolution, right? This Again, a remarkable civilizational development that I would not want to have not happened, right? On the one hand, it is raising standards of living with efficient manufacturing of goods and automation of services. But on the other hand, it also begins this really interesting process of systematically finding ways to instrumentalize human beings, right? and the natural world, right? Um, reducing us to mere means to a given end, a given end that is usually market-driven, right? Um, and so for hundreds of years, factories have been designed with explicit systems of control to serve the insatiable appetites of optimization and of efficiency, right? We have assembly lines, we have employment management practices, right, that have long been prescribed and uh, monitored um, for uh, monitoring employees for how long it should take to complete a task, right? This is all part of the, the machinery of factory, right, life and industrialization. Um, and it's, so it's with this history in mind, I think it's bracing to realize that our contemporary time management techniques that we use ourselves are merely internalized versions of those formerly external industrial systems of control, right? Before you worked in a factory, you had a manager that was like peering over you, making sure you got things done, right? This is external. Now, we, we got our calendars, we got our little techniques, we're doing it ourselves. I don't need a manager, looking over me. I'm doing it to myself. I am self-regulating. I am self-scheduling, right? To do what? To maximize my optimization, right? Optimizing my productivity and so forth, right? Um, and so we willingly apply and enforce this system upon ourselves. Um, so I'm very aware that many of us in this room have trained long and hard in the habits of productivity. Um, we wouldn't be here if we didn't. Um, and the challenge for us is this, like, how can we begin to retrain our bodies and our imaginations to become people who live not to be productive, full stop, right? 
um, but to become people who live to love God and be grounded in God's estimation of our worth and who we are. How do we do that, right? How do we become people who live not to be productive, but to love our neighbor, right? Because we've been transformed by God's love and see them with new eyes, right? How do we do all that? Um, I'm, I'm applying my social imaginary concept, right? We need a new story. We need something else to animate why we do what we do, right? Um, so instead of this ruthless story of that, that our culture of productivity tells, right? We need a counter story for what it means to be human instead of our culture's story of scarcity, striving, and control. We need a story of abundance and rest and freedom, right? And I think that's what um, the church today needs to be offering to people. I mean, so many people are hungry for this, and I think it's in the gospel. Right? It's there, right? We just kind of have to, like, bring it out. Um, so um, we needed a good, a, a new counter story, and I'm going to tell a story that some of you may be familiar with. It's um, theologian Emmanuel Katangle writes about it. Um, he's telling a story about uh, Catholic Archbishop John Baptist Odama of Uganda. All right, so I'm going to um, tell the story that he tells and and suggest what what how we might kind of build on it. Right, so so Archbishop Odama is someone who has devoted his life to attempting to forge peace between the government and the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. He's criticized by both sides, um, but he is still beloved by the local people. And he is known for coming out in his flowing robes um, to sleep on the streets with the children who are fleeing from the conflict. Um, and Katagale writes this. He says, Odama visits displacement camps, negotiates with rebels, and works tirelessly for peace. He says, every day is extremely busy, full of visits, meetings, and negotiations. But on Thursdays, he says, I am not available. No one can meet with him on Thursdays. He does not go out. That day he spends alone in a chapel, quote, before the blessed sacrament. There, every week, for an entire day, hidden from public view, Odama detaches him from the struggle that surrounds him, adores the body of Jesus, listens to and cries out to God, and returns then to his community freshly rooted in a deeper vision. Right? The public Odama is well known, Katangle writes. And I love this line. Yet there is no public Odama without the Odama we do not see. Right? The hidden Odama points to what it looks like to belong to God and to keep returning one's work and vision to God. Right? The public Odama doesn't exist without the private, the, the Odama we do not see. Right? And I think so often Christians think of the good news as a message to be proclaimed with words. Um, but I think this story points out how the good news is something to also be embodied and enjoyed, right? Modeled. 
um, being the church in the digital age um, can look like a counter movement of learning to be in our bodies and practicing how to cultivate a hidden self as Archbishop Odama's example reveals, right? We we cultivate the hidden self in order to sustain the public self, right? So how can we begin? Well, you know what's in my pocket. Perhaps we can start with an experiment. Uh, we can start with an experiment that pushes back and resists the ways of productivity. Um, so instead of multitasking, all the ways or hypertasking. Um, what if we try monotasking? Yes, it is what it sounds like. Um, what if we tried to do one thing and just one thing? What would happen? And I'm not saying like just lose all the multitasking, right? And just only live a life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying let's do an experiment, right? An intentional controlled environment experiment, right? Of like, I'm going to choose, I usually multitask in this. I'm going to try doing monotask in this. Just let's see, right? So what does this look like? When we're driving alone, maybe we just drive. No phone calls, no podcasts, no music, just drive, right? When we're eating on our own, we just eat. That's it. It's pretty simple. When we wait, <laughs> this is for the advanced, <laughs> pious people. <laughs> we just wait. Yeah? Right? Um, what might we learn when we monotask? Right? in the silence, in the stillness, in the solitude? What might we discover about ourselves? What might we learn about the places that we move through all the time? What might we see anew of the people that are around us? Um, what might we discover uh, the Holy Spirit is inviting us towards? Right. Um, so I tried this. Um, I tried this once. <laughs> <laughs> I still do try it. It's, it's, it's an endless game of experiments for me. Um, so I started with driving. I decided I'm going to, I used to be someone who always listened to the radio or music, um, when I drove. Um, and so I decided, you know, I'm going to try monotasking when I drive. Like, I'm just going to drive. Um, and for me, I don't have a long commute. <laughs> um, for me, most of my driving involves like dropping my kids off at school, you know, kind of thing. So like 10 minute, 15 minute kind of thing. So I drop my child off at school and then I would just have like a 10 minute, 15 minute drive back home. So instead of turning on the music or the radio, podcast, whatever, I just like shh, quiet. The first time I did it, it was horrible. <laughs> it was terrible. I was like practically breaking out in a cold sweat, right? Because I was like... <laughs> It's really quiet. What am I doing? This is dumb. <laughs> I'm in a tin can and nothing is happening, right? It was terrible. I got home. I was like, okay, I'll try it again next time, <laughs> right? Um, I did it again the next day, right? Uh, I did it again and I, I in the silence and the driving I started seeing, oh, oh, that neighbor, 
they they kind of trim their hedges differently this time. Or, or, or they have a new, like, wagon. Oh, did they have a, yeah, is their child older now? You know, like, what, what, you know, I started seeing things I just hadn't seen, right? Um, and then I just kept doing it. Because once I had pushed through that initial, like, uh, this is weird and uncomfortable, then it was starting like, oh, this is sort of interesting. And then it kept progressing to the point of, I started looking forward to that time, that 10, 15 minutes. Because I started realizing this is the only 10, 15 minutes of my day where no one needs something from me <laughs> and I cannot check my device for things while I'm driving, right? Like, I get 10, 15 minutes, right? And I was like, oh, this is good. Quiet, right? Sometimes that was filled with me needing to process what was going on in my own life or in the lives of people that I love. Sometimes it was sensing like, oh, I think God might have something to say to me. Better really be quiet. (laughs) Try to listen in, right? Um, And so that time, right, that came with the monotasking became a delight, it became a delight for me. Um, it was that, it was exactly what the counter liturgy that I hoped it could be, you know, it became that. Um, and it, it convinced me that I should try monotasking in other areas because maybe I'm, I'm just steamrolling all over all these other incredible moments of beauty, right? Of gratitude, of just calm. Um, or crying, you know, sometimes it was just like, I just need to let it out, right? And then be able to like get all suited up and go on with my day, right? Um, so what can we do that might, um, help us, right? Push against the ways of productivity and time management. Um, and in, in this way, monotasking as an experiment can function, right? As some kind of, for some of us, it might even become a spiritual discipline. Right. We move through the experiment stage and we're like, oh, this is actually, you know, God moves in this time, in this space. I want to I want to commit to this. Right. Um, and it presses us to confront the hard but necessary questions. Um, can we actually trust that what God desires in us is not how productive we are or how much good we can do in this world, but rather that God desires our presence, our allowing ourselves to be still in the loving arms of our Lord, right? Can we believe that actually, right? Can we trust that ultimately God longs to love us, to weep over us, to pour healing life into us so that we might be free to rest, right? Can we believe that God actually wants us to rest, Right? Can we really, really believe that? Um, so I want to submit to you today that when we as a church consider the place of technology in our personal and collective lives, we should be having soul-searching conversations about um, how, uh, who we think we are as the church 
and how, and how we imagine our Christian formation and our public witness. Sorry, that came off weird. Let's try that again. Um, we should be having soul-searching conversations about who we think we are as the church and how we imagine our Christian formation and our public witness, right? Do we genuinely think that people desire some sort of reality that asserts supremacy over and above the appeals of digital convenience, efficiency, and productivity, right? Do we actually believe that today people actually long for someone, some place, some community, some reality whose significance reaches beyond all of those tiny but constant urges to check their devices for something new to chew on? Right. I just feel like a lot of times we, we're actually not so sure. Like we, we kind of like throw up our hands or like, I don't know. I can't compete against that. Right. And so it's, it's sobering like to say like, well, do I actually trust? Right. That, that the story of the gospel is true and therefore does bring real life for people. Right. In ways that are, are way beyond, you know, what we can ever construct. That is the, the work of the spirit. Right. But there are things in our institutional uh, decisions and practices that we can try and consider um, to kind of like move the needle. Right. Um, and try to say, OK, like what our social imaginary is as people of Christ yeah, it, it actually is true, right? Like it actually has um, has meaningful effect. So I want to offer up two brief um, examples of institutions who I think have said yes in their own ways about like believing that we can press against this kind of um, assumptions about productivity, um, and and hopefully they'll just kind of get you thinking about how it might possibly work in your community. Oop. Um, I'm so excited that, oh, let's see if that button will work. There we go. Um, I was realizing and preparing for today that my examples, one of them is actually local. Um, so on the left, I, I think I got the right picture, um, is actually a picture of a, a Portland synagogue. Um, so, um, many years ago, my nephew, um, was, uh, having his bar mitzvah and I was able to attend at the synagogue and, um, you know, we sat down and we had the program. Um, and I was really struck by this one little sentence on the bottom of the program, right? They had all the proceedings of the, um, of the, um, service, but right on the bottom, it said, um, uh, something to the effect of, um, we'd love for everyone who's in this holy sanctuary to turn off and put away their electronic devices. The synagogue is a holy place of worship, deserving reverence and respect. Right? Um, and I was like, ah, oh, that's super interesting. Right? Here's this place of worship that is kind of offering up this little tidbit of, of etiquette, right? Saying like, hey, you know, this is what this space is, actually, right? But we, we've got the Torah here, right? Like, this is the space. So let's just, let's respect it in this way. We can practice respect in this way. Um, but it had quietly but firmly drawn a counter-liturgical line, right? Um, a line that I have curiously not seen 
um, in many American Christian environments, right? Um, and yeah, that raises all these super interesting questions, right? Like, well, why is that? And, and, and do we have different, um, aesthetic sensibilities or, or understandings of what reverence in holy spaces are and so forth, right? Um, but all worth probing to be like, well, why, why, why don't we have a we Christian family, right? Have the same type of line. Um, we don't feel it in us in the way that this, at least this community did, right? Um, so that was interesting to me, right? And again, it's, this is an example of a, a work of the people, right? Not individual, but collective. This is who we're going to be, right? And it's not like they have people policing, you know, of course, there were still people on their phones, right? But it was just like, we're just telling you this is who we are, right? Um, okay. So second on the right, um, is this non-religious institution, all right? I think um, even non-religious institutions are seeking to believe that people today want something more than technology. So if you've ever visited an art museum in the last, you know, 10 years or so, you know that they're often guided tours and information that are made available on apps that you can download and so forth, right? Um, and interestingly, um, for an institution that is... Its mission is actually to try to create an environment that um, cultivates engagement and communion with art, right? Um, there's one museum that identified a problem. They're like, okay, we're like telling people, we're giving all them great information about the art. But this is what they're doing when they're walking around each thing. <laughs> they're like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, right? And they're like, before, like these incredible, right, classics. Where they're like, you know. like okay, uh, something's not working, right? People end up staring down instead of up at the art. Super interesting challenge, puzzle, right? Because that information is incredible, right? I mean, it's so helpful for so many people to appreciate what's going on in, in the piece in front of this. So, um, so the Stanford Cantor Art Center, um, decided, uh, they were going to do something different, okay? Uh, their director in an interview remarked, um, in our busy lives, we're always connected to the technology. So people want to come into museums and put that technology aside for a moment, right? So it's interesting. Like, her vision is like, oh, yeah, like, people, when they come here, like, they actually don't want to be, right, in there every day. This is why they've come here, right? They're seeking relief or inspiration, right? Um, so what do they do? What they do now is they still offer up the new technology, but they also offer up an old technology, paper and colored pencils, right? They're like, there's the counter liturgy, right? It's like, hey, try this, right? Think about it. Children, right? Drawing, sketching, right? And in doing this, there's a kind of like hopefulness and intention, right? Kindled when, you know, you're just walking, turning the corner in a gallery, right? And you see a child lying on the floor, right? Just like gazing up at a, at a piece and they're just, it just, it blesses everyone, right? Um, and so perhaps we can see, um, through what this art museum has done, um, in, in a counter liturgy concerning artistic engagement, right? In their sacred space, maybe there's something parallel. Right, that we can be thinking about. Right, perhaps the American Christian Church can also dare to believe the same thing, right, about our times of gathering, our spaces, 
right? That as, as Connie Wolf put it, people want to come and put that technology aside for a moment, right? Do we, do we believe that? And, and can we believe that they, people want to experience a sacred space, um, in the actual spaces that many of us actually call a sanctuary, right? And again, this word I think is so powerful um, because it evokes this subsequent questions, right? Well, what is it a sanctuary from, right? And what is it a sanctuary for, right? Like what are we protecting people from, right? Or shielding them temporarily, and then what are we hoping, right, that sanctuary space will cultivate and grow, right, in the people that have the chance to be there? Um, so as a sociologist, I find these two examples um, completely inspiring because they are institutional in nature, right? Um, and, and they're creating structural realities that people kind of just walk into, you're not having to tell them this is what we believe necessarily. It's just like this is how we do things, right? It's just like if someone comes into your home, you just do things a certain way and, and people just kind of like, okay, I'm happy to follow along, right? Um, so when we extend our counter liturgies beyond our individual lives, right, I think followers of Jesus have opportunities to not just change our own behaviors, but actually impact the rules of the game for the common good, right? This is, I mean, I think this is where it gets super interesting, thinking about our communities, our neighborhoods, right? It is about how we create our spaces, how we design the times of our gathering has the potential to impact the rules of the game for how people are living with their technologies, right? If this is a space, the one space that might be tech-free once a week, maybe it'll create anxiety for a little bit, but the encouragement to push through maybe becomes rest at some point, right? Um, so if we reflect deeply on the practices of our Jewish cousins and our aesthetic neighbors, who I believe share an appetite for the transcendent, um, we might begin to imagine our church sanctuaries and our church communities similarly, right? Um, can we begin to recognize that how we organize and engage our life together, right, communicates an alternative way of being and seeing? Um, you know, I'm going to just hammer in this point I've been making already. I think in our state of permanent connectivity, um, we as the church run the risk of missing out on encountering God as a people, actually, right? Um, and we miss out on um, encountering God in the places, right, that we have been planted um, in our efforts to control our journeys and to seek productivity, right? Um, so perhaps we can be a demonstration plot of counter-liturgy, right, wholly embracing a kind of radical witness of what it could look like to be embodied in presence, right, in this world, um, cultivating a hidden self uh, so that we can encounter very often the hidden God, right, um, to have a public self that is worth engaging, okay? Um, 
I think in this post-pandemic season, it's a perfect time. I mean, I might be completely foolish because um, I am not doing what you do. And I know you all have very full plates. Um, but so much got thrown up in the air during pandemic for church communities, right? All the things that we had done for a long time and nobody thought could be touched, right? Rituals, how we do things got all upended. And I think even though all of that was very disruptive and costly, right? And for so many of you that put so much time into trying to salvage what you could, right? It is also that disruption also has kind of given us capacity, I think, to reassess, right? Like it's kind of softened a lot of the things that were so concrete for so long, right? That we could say, hey, you know, let's talk about what is truly the essence of our community, our ministry, right? Our organizational life together. Um, and how is uh, technology weaving into that in a way that is helpful and harmful, right? Um, and it's not just about um, outward facing. I'm not talking about just like out for outward facing, like what do we do with the youth group, right? Or how do we reach the community? I'm talking about like how do we run ourselves as an organization, Right. We are a workplace with people that are trying to do their jobs, right? Where technology does certainly play a role in it, right? As, as the gentleman mentioned earlier, right? It's like, how are those practices working for us? <laughs> right? Like really, right? Cause so many of us just kind of pick up the tools that are ready, right? And we're just like, okay, let's, let's try this. Let's do this, right? And we haven't, had time or taken time to kind of sit down together and say, hey, let's talk about this because this is actually like interpenetrating our capacity to do what we do, right? Uh, it's forming us, right? How can we be helping each other, right? That's the whole institutional part of it is if you set up structures, you're actually helping everyone, right, live into an environment uh, culture, right, that has intention built into it that says, yes, I see, I see you. I see what the effect of this practice is. We're going to shift it this way or offer this other way to do it. And let's try it. Let's try it for a season. See what happens. Adapt as we need to. Okay. Um, so um, how are the ways that we employ the digital in our communication, our decision-making interactions, shaping people's imaginations um, in ways that encourage us, right, to perceive the hiddenness of God and to cultivate in ourselves a hidden self. All right, I'm asking lots of big questions, I know. Um, you know, in some ways, individuals is like so much easier, <laughs> right? You're just kind of like, well, I just got to do this little thing for me. Now we're talking organizational, institutional. We got to get buy-in, get everyone. We got to have the hard conversation, right? Um, that's more complicated, right? So here are some questions that you might bring um, back into your communities um, to think about. Um, what's the role of the digital in the experience of being a parishioner, a co-laborer, um, and or an employee? 
what do our organizational practices express about our mission and what we value, right? So this is that whole, like, um, are the things that we're doing, how we do things, actually aligned with what we say who we are, about who we are, right? Um, how do our organizational practices shape how we imagine who God is and how we follow Jesus? Um, and then finally, how might we modify our organizational practices to help us better pursue the kind of soul formation we need at this time, right now? Um, thanks. Hey, thanks again for listening today. If you enjoyed this content, you may enjoy the talks from our previous Gospel Gathering speakers, so I'd encourage you to check out the other episodes in this series. We do these gatherings live in the Portland metro area about once a quarter, so check out togetherpdx.org slash events to see who's coming next. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.